Good morning. This morning I want to start off with a rabbit trail. This screen behind me I chose specifically because I think it's a tremendous representation of our choices in our Christian life. In fact, it seems to go along pretty well with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Let me read them to you. Do, not know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That racetrack seems to represent our lives and the life of race, the race of life, I mean. And it seems to me that Jesus Christ ran that course and he, his track led to the cross so that ours does not have to. Our track can lead to heaven if we accept his provision of the cross. And that requires commitment, much the same commitment as a runner, a runner has to have to make it into the, uh, to the race and to complete that race. So this morning I want to speak about commitment. And I've called this message Palm Sunday Passions. But uh, before we do that, I want to tell a story about Palm Sunday. It was Palm Sunday, but because little five-year-old Johnny had a sore throat, he had to stay home with a sitter. Now, the family had to travel about 30 minutes to church, but it was worth it because of the good fellowship and and good Bible preaching. This particular Sunday was a particularly good message, and the family lingered around after a while to visit with friends and just have a good fellowship time. And when they finally did get home, they were carrying palm fronds from the service. Well, when they walked in the door, little Johnny asked them, what are they? What are they for? And his dad said that, well, some people held them over Jesus' head. Some people laid them on the ground so the donkey could walk on them. Little Johnny was just fuming. He said, just like I would expect. The one Sunday I don't go to church and he shows up. But now, in all seriousness, I'd like us to look at some Palm Sunday passions. And the message is going to come out of John 12 and a few other passages thrown in there to make it interesting. And the summary is that Jesus' arrival is received with great and varied emotion. But before we uh, look at the next slide, which will be John 12, I'd like to look to the author in a word of prayer. Would you join me, please? Father, we do come before you because you are God. And we are your creation, and you have sent your Son to be our provision for salvation. We pray that each one here might know Jesus Christ personally, and that if they do not, that they will come to do that quickly, today even. And Lord, we pray that each one of us might have a very serious commitment to follow and obey you, so that we might bring glory and honor to your name. We ask you to bless us now with understanding, in Jesus' name, amen. The next slide will show us what I've called the uh, three passions of Palm Sunday. The faithful passions, the fuming passions, possibly fighting passions, and the fickle passions. 
Those are three major categories that I think are recorded for us in the account of John from the first century, which are very parallel to the same responses we experience today in our culture. The next slide will start us off with the faithful passion. And what I plan to do is read through these and then go back and comment them on them. So if you join me, in this, the scripture should be on the screen behind me. John 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out after him. This is a scripture, I think, that describes faithful passion. Now, the next slide will give us a bit of an understanding here, because I, I asked some questions. What's a crowd? A crowd has various meanings, I think. And the crowd for Passover, according to Robert Pollock, one of the men that I, I researched, he suggested that there was about a population of 30,000 people living in Jerusalem in the first century. And that when the feasts occurred, in, case, in this case, Passover, as many as 80,000 or even more would come to the city to celebrate and to worship. Well, okay, those are big numbers. By the way, there's huge variation in discussion about how big the population was. The high side that I read was 1,100,000. So there's a lot of discussion and room for uh, disagreement there. But I like this conservative one in part because of what my further research showed up. But to compare this with old settlers, which has been going on for about 130 years, uh, I asked Rick Beyer, and he thought that on a Saturday, probably the high population was about 5,000 attending, and pumpkins in the park was 1,000. But to give some bearing on that, when Beth and I were over in Jerusalem, we were thinking about this this week, Old Jerusalem seemed to be about the size of Cisna Park, quite frankly. And so I thought that might be a good comparison, so I looked it up. Wikipedia tells us that the old city in Jerusalem covers 0.35 square miles. And in 2007, the population was 36,965. Okay, how big is Cisna Park? Cisna Park covers 0.7 square miles. It's twice as big as Jerusalem. And the population in, in 2010 was 846. So I know how crowded it gets for pumpkins in the park. I know how crowded it gets for old settlers. And it's pretty, pretty uh, big change. So imagine in a city half the size of Cessna Park with however many 80,000 possible attendees would make it. That's a big crowd. Now, in that crowd, there was various responses to the realities of Jesus Christ. And the next slide will introduce us to some of those. (coughs) 
first off, we see the 11 disciples. Now, Judas has already made his exit. So there was 11 disciples. And any of you that grew up in the late 60s or 70s know this rather familiar greeting. Hey, man, what's happening? Well, that's kind of what they were saying. And uh, they didn't understand what was going on. But think about who they were. This was a motley crew. They're, they're, they weren't all paupers. None of these guys were homeless, I don't think. Luke was a doctor. Uh, John had enough prestige to have a connection with the chief priest, Pilate, to get him and Peter into the trial of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, they, they were, uh, Matthew was a tax collector, so he, he was probably living comfortably, dishonestly, but comfortably. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, these guys were a mixed group. But they weren't used to being worshipped. <laughs> they weren't used to being the focus point of a crowd's admiration. Now, they did see the multitudes that came to Jesus to get healed, and they had to escape from those to get rest. But this was an entirely different venue. Jesus Christ was walking into town where he was a wanted man. The church leaders had an all-points bulletin out to arrest him. Excuse me. Can I get a glass of water, babe? <coughs> oh, thank you, these guys. I'm sorry, I uh, got a frog in my throat. But the, uh, they weren't used to being the focus of attention, and here Jesus Christ was undoubtedly recognized as deity, the focus of attention. But if you go back a couple of slides, I want to look at the crowd from Lazarus in verse 17 there. The crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, that was with Jesus, raised him from the dead. They continued to spread the word. They were very evangelistic. They were very, very committed, I might add, or suggest. <clears throat> what That was an undeniable, supernatural miracle. Even the Pharisees recognized that in a couple of passages we'll get to here. These folks watched a man that they knew and they knew had died, lay in the tomb for four days, and then come back to life. Undeniably an act of deity. They were very committed to Christ because they knew that this guy was something special. They knew that he had the power of God to raise the dead. And they were following him. They were here at this crowd that had celebrated his entrance into the city. Thank you very much. I haven't preached for so long, I'm nervous. The, uh, but th- this crowd was, was a, uh, a, a very committed crowd. They, they watched a man come back from the dead. And they were there. In fact, it was so obvious that they were uh, worshiping God. Look what the Pharisees said at the end of that statement. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This wasn't something that was unknown. It was a big deal. And these folks were the faithful followers. They had a faithful passion for Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back to the uh, sl- the slide number four there, I think it was. Uh, yeah. What they were shouting was Hosanna. Hosanna. That, that could have meant come save us now from this political terror that we're under called Rome. That was a, a, a exclamation requesting salvation. Dictionary.com calls it an exclamation originally an appeal to God for deliverance, used in praise of God or Christ. I think that we could 
parallel that today with hallelujah or praise the Lord. They were seriously committing themselves or recognizing Christ. <coughs> they, they called him the coming one, the king of Israel. They were somewhat informed of his prophetic reality. They didn't have Zondervan publishing, so they didn't all have their Bibles. The only Bible knowledge they got was from the temple, the priests, and their worship and, and personal information that they've gleaned from one another. And I'll, we'll see in a little bit that it says several of the leaders of the Jews were converted and believers. So they probably were teaching the people who this man called Jesus Christ truly was. And they were faithfully following him. They were committed to him. Hosanna, the coming one, the king of Israel. This, this group of people is a group that I would like to be called part of at some point in life. But unfortunately, we go on to the next slide, which describes the fuming passion. And I'm going to blow my nose, so hang it. The fuming passion is, is uh, revealed here beginning in John 11. At least that's where I picked it up. This is before the, the uh, triumphal entry, but I'd like you to read along with me. John 11, 45 to 53. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But, big but, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. <coughs> this is a, a, a terrible record for all of the world to read, for all of history, because here are the supposed religious leaders of the nation of Israel, God's chosen, God's chosen people, conspiring to kill the one who is demonstrating himself to be the Son of God. Now, something to keep in mind as we're reading this in the Gospel of John, that John is positioning these different events in his record of the Gospel to accomplish his goal, which he has told us in chapter 21, 20, verse 31, that he wrote these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. The purpose of the Gospel of John is evangelistic, and he is putting these stories in a sequence to prove that Christ is God, but also to show how people respond differently to this very evident reality. The commitment of the people becomes evident in the way they act toward Jesus. We saw the faithful passion, and now the fuming passion is unfortunately coming primarily from the religious leaders of that day who were more worried about their personal and political losses than they were about the reality of Christ in their presence. That's horrendous. That is absolutely horrendous. 
but it's the reality that is recorded. Now, some things that I want to think about here is in that passage, we see that then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest, spoke up. I think Caiaphas must have had premeditation about his suggestion to murder Jesus. Back in chapter 9 and following is when it really gets intense with Christ being rejected by the religious leaders. And Caiaphas must have been kicking this idea around, maybe privately, maybe with his buddies, but but here he makes it public, <clears throat> and it becomes a corporate uh, conspiracy to murder Jesus Christ. But they completely ignored what they recognized, miraculous signs, everyone believing in him. This is not something that could be an iffy idea. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. They didn't think that. They knew it. In fact, that's why they're going to condemn him. But it was a prior planned murder. And then if you notice in verse 51, I think John, in his arrangement of these stories, now gives in this next couple of sentences his evangelistic interpretation of that murder uh, suggestion. He says, he, he, that is, Pilate, did not say this on his own, but God used him to prophesy that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together to make them one. <coughs> John is, again, using this horrendous rejection of the religious leaders of the day to further his, his explanation of salvation. This evil man, Pilate, or this sinful man, Pilate, he's going to agree to what these evil religious leaders are suggesting. Not just here in John eleven forty five to fifty three. The next slide shows us eleven fifty seven. This is still before the triumphal entry, and the chief priests had put out an all points bulletin on Jesus Christ. But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it, so they might arrest him. Now, the significance of that is that after Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the grave, the they, people did try to kill him. They took up stones to try and stone him in, in chapter 11. And he left. He, he, he exited there because it wasn't his time yet. And he went to a place called Ephraim, which is about 15 miles north of Bethany, so the, the uh, academics say. And so he had left the area. And the Pharisees were looking for him but couldn't find him. So they put out this, this notice, 